If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 3. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Greg's got a bunch in his hand and he'll bring one to your seat so you can follow along with us. First John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses this morning, but if you would back it up to verse 28, because I want to get, just hit the last couple of verses in, in chapter 2, and then we'll go, just we'll read to verse 3 of chapter 3, and then we'll hit the rest as we go along. First John chapter 2, really starting in verse 28, we read, John writing, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We'll stop there for right now. The title of my study is The Real Love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place this morning, and to, Lord, have your word on our laps, knowing that it's your desire to speak to us through your word. And so we pray as your church that we would have ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. We thank you for this, this building you provided for us. Lord, we pray for the children downstairs as they're being taught your word as well, Lord, that they would have open ears to receive all that you have for them as well. And even at a young age, they would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. And Father, we do pray if there's anyone here in this service, Lord, that doesn't have you as their Lord and as their Savior, they don't know what it means to have their sin forgiven or to be born again. Lord, would you especially touch their heart this morning. So we thank you for this time, Lord. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. found a letter called Love Letters Lament. Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, in my life. So please, please forgive me. I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. And congratulations on winning the state lottery. (laughs) Well, we begin a new section here in chapter 3 of 1 John. As John calls us to experience the real love of God. Karl Barth, famed theologian, was once asked, What is the greatest thought you've ever had? His answer, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You see... This little epistle of 1 John was written to answer some questions. Yes, even Christians have pressing doubts about their status with God, their status in the church, their status in the world. Doubts about their salvation, doubts about whether this sin will cause them to be booted out of the family of God. Feelings over guilt, you know, over people you just don't seem to be able to love. The struggle with old habits. John addresses all of that in this little epistle. Because when you become a Christian and you walk with God and desire to maintain fellowship with Him, what happens? You really begin to hate your sin and to love God all the more. John Newton was a slave trader who became a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, wrote one of the most beloved hymns of all time, Amazing Grace. He said this, I am not what I ought to be, 
but I'm not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at three things this morning. Uh, number one, living in love. Number two, living in hope. And number three, living in the light of eternity. Number one, living in love. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So here's John. As you know, we've been looking at this. He's, he's thinking about the false teachers that have come into the church. He's thinking about the world. He's thinking about sin. He's, and he's all trying, how it's all trying to detract you from having a true fellowship with God. And he's thinking about those that, how important it is that they're abiding in Christ and how they won't be ashamed when Christ returns to this earth. He starts to get excited. He's contemplating this great love of God that has for us and he just explodes with this great verse. Look at verse 1 now. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. You know, back when I first got saved, we used to sing this song. And it was that verse and we'd sing it in rounds and, and we'd start here and start there and go over and over again. And I won't have you guys do that this morning, but I just want you to know that. I don't know why, but here's the thing. When you think about your final destination, the final outcome of our salvation, eternity, and heaven, and you think about the love of God that lies behind it and how wonderful it is and how great He is, you understand why John just burst into this praise for God and for the greatness of His love in making us His children. See, when John says the word behold, it means how great. It implies this great astonishment. In our modern language, it would be, check it out. And then the phrase, what manner, literally means something that is foreign. The phrase was used for something that was foreign or out of your country. And you can almost translate it, out of this world. So, Tom paraphrased would be, wow, check it out. This is out of this world. I mean, God, from out of this world, has so much love for us that he would call us his kids, his children. I mean, here's John who hung out with Jesus. All those years, but, but yet he's absolutely blown away that, that he's included and in, in that God would call him a child of God. Why? Well, because we've been born into God's family through that rebirth, through being born again. That makes us children of God. And I think John is really uh, enamored by the idea that we can be born again. I mean, think about his gospel, John chapter 3, when there's this discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus about being born again. I love that John recorded that in his gospel for us to have. You know, that story he probably got from Jesus himself. Hey, John, come here. i got to tell you what just took place. I want you to write this down later on. Uh, you know, this man named Nicodemus, and he came to me, and, and, and he wanted to know about being born again. I told him the importance of being born again. You can see John going, whoa, that's very cool. Yeah, I want to put that in my gospel. Now, of course, the Spirit of God inspired John to write that clear teaching on you must be born again and to write that once you're born again, you become a child of God. Peter teaches us the same thing, that we become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean we become little gods like some false teachers think. It means that when, when you become a Christian, when you're born again, God puts His Holy Spirit inside of you and you become partakers of the, the nature of God and of His holiness and of His love and His mercy and His compassion. All of those attributes of God that are communicable to human beings, those who are born into God's family, begin to take on those characteristics and traits. Now certainly, I'm never going to be omniscient like God is. Certainly, I'm not omnipotent, nor am I ever going to be omnipresent. 
even though I may put on some weight. Hopefully I won't get that big that I'm not omnipresent. But, but listen, I can be holy as God is holy. I can be long-suffering. I can be patient and kind and compassionate and, and forgiving, loving. Those attributes I can have. I can love as God loves. And that's what John is saying here as well. Because becoming a child of God means taking on His attributes. You know, it's like, like your kids. You see a little bit of you in your kids. Now, sometimes the you you see in your kids is a you you don't like to see in your kids. I know I've been frustrated with my son Matthew before, and I'll say to him, Oh, you are so much like me. You know, just out of that frustration, I can see it in him. I don't like that. But, you know, even still, you, see, you do see some good attributes that your kids have. And since God is nothing but good, when we're born again as a child of God, we take on those certain attributes of God. And notice, John continues in verse 1. He says that God has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. As Christians, we see things others don't see. We, we hear things others can't because the Holy Spirit ministers to our spirit concerning spiritual truth. And as a result, we look at the world around us entirely different. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. He says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, that he himself is rightly judged by no one. So you have the natural man. I mean, the natural man, you know, he may go to Walmart and buys all natural salad dressing and naturally grown tomatoes, naturally. When a lady pushes her grocery cart in front of him to check a line, it's only natural that he gets upset. After ringing up the groceries, the checker accidentally gives him too much change. He keeps it naturally. Then he comes home and, and does what comes naturally. He eats, drinks, and is somewhat merry until the emptiness of his soul drives him to, to look for something else. So maybe it goes to a Bible study. Here's the word being taught. The scriptures being discussed. But, but, but to him it's foolishness because as a natural man... He can understand the things of the Spirit. He's blind naturally. But on the other hand, he that is spiritual, John says, is the one who has the Holy Spirit living with him. He's a child of God. See, to the world, we as believers, we're an enigma. I mean, they call us, oh, we're the end time gang, or the Jesus freaks, religious fanatics, the fundamentalists. They don't get us. The world doesn't understand why you want to come to Bible study on a Sunday morning, why you have devotions, why you spend time in worship. Got, they don't understand because they don't know Jesus. They've never come to know the love of God that He has for them. They really have no hope. But for us, it's a difference. And that brings us to our second point, living in hope. Look at verse 2 and on into verse 3. He says, Behold, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So John says we become the children of God, but we've not yet been glorified. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So, I mean, to look at fellow believers, you know, you look around and, and you know, we don't glow in the dark. Okay, we don't have some little glowing thing, halo over our head. You know, we look like normal human beings. But one day... We're going to get a glorified body that's going to be totally different. It's going to be transformed, changed, eternal in the heavens. One that doesn't have to watch what you eat. One that, you know, never worries about losing any more hair that you have. It'll be glorious. John says when that day comes, we're going to be like him, like Jesus. The transformation is going to take place. 
Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Notice that word must there. It's emphatic. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. We can't go to heaven the way we are now. Nor would we want to. You know, we can't go to heaven with, with the old bodies we have. We wouldn't be able to see. We wouldn't be able to enjoy what's there. You know, we're almost deaf and blind as far as heaven is concerned. Even on earth. I mean, there's so much. Uh, the, the, the spectrum is so big of, of our senses that, that we miss so much of it. But one day we're going to have a glorified body. We're going to receive these bodies that are transformed, changed, eternal in the heaven. And John says, when that day comes, we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to be like him. That phrase, like him, verse 2, not necessarily physical likeness, but moral likeness. We're going to be free from sin. We're going to be uh, free from suffering, free from sickness, free from all the pain and all the sorrows of this life. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then John says this, look at verse 3. I want to underline this. This is great. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has the hope of heaven, has the hope of seeing Jesus, everyone who is looking for His return is going to walk with a greater degree of purity than which He would otherwise walk. See, when you're aware that Jesus could return at any moment, then it should definitely have an effect on the way we live our lives, or at least it should. It doesn't matter if you believe in a pre-tribulation, a mid-tribulation, a post-tribulation rapture, when you read Jesus' words concerning the end times, you cannot come to any con- other conclusion other than He wants us to live each day as if He could return at any moment. Now there are those who say, well, you know, I've been hearing that for years. You know, you've been talking about Jesus coming back for, you've been here for 17 years, Pastor Tom, he's still, where is He? You know, you know, before that I heard Billy Graham talk about it. You know, then I, you know, I heard that, that D.L. Moody also believed Jesus would come shortly and Spurgeon said the same thing 150 years ago. It still hasn't happened. That's okay. I mean, even if the Lord doesn't come back in my lifetime, put me in the company of men throughout history who have lived their lives expecting the soon coming of Christ. Put me in the same, same company of, of friends as Spurgeon and Moody and Tory and Finney and my, my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith. I mean, I would rather be with, with, with uh, those men throughout the ages, including the first century church, who were living with the true expectancy that Jesus could return at any moment than with those who say, oh, it's not going to be today. But just in case you have some doubts, just in case that you're going, you know, really, is the Lord going to come back? Let me share with you something that, that has happened recently that might get you a little bit excited about the Lord's return. Keep your place in 1 John chapter 3 and turn in your Bibles over to the book of Jeremiah chapter 49. Jeremiah chapter 49. Now, it's right after the book of Isaiah, right before a book of Lamentations. Usually if you open up your Bibles, you hit Isaiah, so you'll just know that. Uh, that's where it's at. And as you get to Jeremiah chapter 49, turn to verse 23. I read this verse, and I heard a stuff that's happening. It happened this last week, and I got excited for the Lord's return. Maybe this week you, you've heard that in the news that Russia deployed the largest naval force to the Mediterranean Sea since the Cold War. 
Headlines read this. A Russian fleet of nuclear-powered warships, a submarine, and three support ships have sailed through the English Channel headed for Syria. And then I read on the same post that the Russian, there were Russian ships already that were there. August 15th, it says, 2016, Russia acquired its first permanent air base in Syria, uh, located near, near Latakia, Syria, on the Mediterranean Sea. September 21st, 2016, Russia deployed an aircraft carrier into the Mediterranean Sea. The carrier will join other Russian naval vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. The ship carries 40 aircraft. October 5th, Russia deploys two warships full of cruise missiles to the Mediterranean. October 6th, a third Russian warship is set sail from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. This warship is loaded with cruise missiles. And again, the one that just happened recently with the, the, the warships going through the English Channel. All of this... They say it's because of the unrest in Aleppo, Syria, between ISIS, the Sunnis, the Shiites, the Assad's army trying to gain control. Apparently, Russia has decided to come in, guns ablazing, to put an end to it all. Look now at Jeremiah 49, verse 23. We read, Against Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are shamed, for they have heard bad news. They are faint-hearted. There is trouble on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Now, Jeremiah brings up two cities, Hamath and Arpad. Hamath, the name means fortress. It's a city uh, today known as Hamas, Syria. It's uh, about 77 miles south of Aleppo. The other city mentioned there is Arpad. The name means I will be spread out. It's a modern-day location. is is approximately 14 miles north of Aleppo, Syria. So the Hebrew grammar says these cities are confounded, they're put to shame, or they're dismayed. What's causing that? Could it be because those cities surround Aleppo and they see what's going to happen pretty soon? Could it be that they've heard bad news, they're faint-hearted, there's trouble on the sea, it cannot be quiet? Could it be that Russia's not going to stop with Aleppo? And what's interesting and why I bring this up is because there's a prophecy given here in Jeremiah 49, not concerning Aleppo, but concerning Damascus. Now Damascus, from from Damascus to Aleppo, is about the same distance from, from here, Springfield, up to, to Jeff, Jeff City. Now look at verse 24 to 27 of Jeremiah 49. Damascus has grown feeble. She turns to flee, and fear has seized her. Anguish and stars have taken her like a woman in labor. Why is the city of praise not deserted, the city of my joy? Therefore her young men shall fall in her streets, and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the palace Ben-Hadad. So these are words from God himself. Clearly God is going to play uh, a direct role in bringing judgment to the city of Damascus. It will be destroyed by fire. And a side note, uh, Ben-Hadad in Hebrew is, 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 means the son of a false god. Hadad was a false god widely worshipped through Assyria. Many who, who study Bible prophecy believe that one of the soon-to-be-fulfilled events just prior to Jesus' return Forest Church will be the complete destruction of the city of Damascus. Isaiah 17 says, The burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap, Isaiah 17.1. Now, Damascus has certainly been attacked, it's been conquered, it's been burned at various points in history, uh, but it is clear that, that it's never been completely destroyed as a city. Damascus is, is, is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities of the planet. God is saying it will cease from being a city. So I look at this and I go, is this where this is leading to with the largest fleet of Russian warships since the Cold War in 1991? 
And then I think of, and, and, and you guys are probably thinking the same thing if you've been with us for a while, Ezekiel chapter 38, Ezekiel chapter 39, yet to be fulfilled. Ezekiel 38 tells us that there will be this, this uh, uh, rise of Muslim nations with the aid of Russia that's going to be, be pulled in, hooked in to attack Israel with the intent of destroying her. In fact, Isaiah, or Jer- Ezekiel tells us that the numbers of this army will be so vast that it, it describes them as clouds covering the land coming against Israel. But then as you move into Ezekiel 39, Ezekiel tells us how God is going to completely intervene and, and, and turn back this invading armies and that five-sixths of this massive invading army is going to be destroyed. It says that it's so bad that it's going to take seven months for them to be burying the dead. See, folks, I believe that we're on the verge of this coming war that is described here, possibly beginning of the destruction of Damascus. How it's going to happen, we're not sure. Is it, is it because of Russia there now? We don't know. But this thing we do know. We know that it's going to happen because God's Word says it's going to happen. So if that's the case, then, then, then I believe, and many believe, that the rapture of the church will take place either right before or right after this event. Listen, that should excite you. Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Do you know one in every 25 verses in the New Testament deal with the Lord's return? It's mentioned 318 times in 260 chapters of the New Testament. It's mentioned one, in every one of the New Testament books except Galatians because it's a, Galatians deals with a specific doctrinal problem and it's not mentioned in 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon. Paul talked about it in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He said to the Philippians in Philippians 3.20 our citizenship is in heaven from which we so eagerly wait for the Savior of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter called the return of Jesus Christ a living hope in 1 Peter 1.3. Paul called it a blessed hope in Titus 2.13. John declared in Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. And then he ends in Revelation 22.20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. My point in bringing up all these verses is that John, instead of just making a point of doctrine, tells us that the soon return of Jesus Christ, knowing that He's coming back, should be incentive for all of us to live a righteous life, to live a holy life, abiding in Jesus Christ. And we're to do that, encourage you to do that by the knowledge of the fact that one day we'll have to give an account before Him. You know, it's one thing to be excited about the Lord coming back, or it's another thing to say, you know, it doesn't matter how I live because, man, the Lord's going to come back. But listen, we have to give an account to the Lord. You know, of, of how, and that should affect the way we live. That's why John says, look back now at First, first uh, John 3, 3. He says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So it should impact the way that we live. And this brings us to our final point, living in light of eternity. Look now back at First John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Because what we see here is the difference between those who are living in the light of eternity and those that are still in the world living in sin. Those that are a true child of God and those who are a child of the devil. John writes, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It's a good definition, isn't it, of sin? It's lawlessness. It's breaking God's laws. Which I might add is also a mark of living in the last days. Lawlessness will abound. Then John adds in verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. This is the first of two times that, that, that John mentioned that Jesus was, was manifested, to, you know, describes why Jesus came. Very clear statement. He was manifested to take away our sins. 
The whole purpose Jesus came into this world so that we can be saved to take away our sin. That's the incarnation, the fact that God became a man, was born of a man. In fact, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The next year, John makes a comparison again between the child of God living for eternity and the unsaved living in sin. Verse 6, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now you might go, oh man, I don't know if I like that. What is that saying? Does that mean that, 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 that because if I've sinned ever after I became a Christian, then I've lost it? I've lost my salvation? I'm doomed? I'm lost forever? That's it? Sorry, you know, have a good week. No, that's not what it means. Listen. It doesn't mean that Christians never sin. It means that you don't continually, habitually, willfully, deliberately practice sin. If you are a Christian and you have fellowship with God, you're not going to deliberately, willfully practice sin. And if you're continually, habitually, deliberately practicing sin, then you're not a child of God. See, this isn't talking about someone who falters in sin or, or struggles with, with, with a certain sin. It's not saying they're not a Christian. This is referring to someone who blatantly, habitually, continually practices sin. They practice that. You know, I think of my son Joey for years, you know, practicing playing baseball, pitching the, the baseball. He's really good at it. But there's people out there, they're really good at sin. Why? Because they've had a lot of practice in it. They're not born again. But John says, look at verse 7, and he uses that enduring term again. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now let me under, give you an understanding of what's going on here. John was writing about the Gnostics. Remember the heresy that they taught is that, that all flesh is evil, so it didn't matter what you did with your physical body, and that all that mattered was spiritual. John is saying, don't be deceived by them. You can live holy life. You can live life set apart for God. And then he, he adds, but he, in verse 8, he was sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. He's making that comparison. We can know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Or how can we know? Again, the one who habitually, continually sins without any remorse. There of Satan. Those who continually, willfully, deliberately follow after righteousness. Child of God. Now, with that said, we need to recognize that the devil is the source of all sin. He's the one responsible for sin being brought into the world. He's the one that led our our first parents into sin. And the reason you and I have a sinful nature today is because of the devil. I think of what Jesus said to the religious rulers of his day in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Again, it's taken on the characteristics of the Father. If your Father is the devil, then you're going to act like Him. If your Father is our Heavenly Father, then you're going to have His nature. You're going to act like Him. If you're not a Christian, the devil is family. If you're a born-again Christian, the devil is your enemy. Let me tell you this. You want Him as your enemy. You don't want Him as family. Well, John goes on in verse 8 and 9. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil... Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So for a second time, John mentions that Jesus was manifested or came into this world, but he has to destroy the power of sin and the works of the devil. And that's what Jesus accomplished. He, He destroyed the power of sin over our lives, that it no longer has power over us. But then John adds this. He says, this time that a mark of being born of God is that you are not going to willfully, deliberately continue in sin. And then he says this, 
for his seed remains in him. Now that could be one of two things. It could be, you know, the Spirit of Christ comes in in a man, or, or it could be the Word of God stirs within him. Either way, or it could be both. Oh, he might struggle with sin. He might even be ensnared at times by sin, but he's not comfortable with sin because you can't sin, keep on sinning, if the Spirit of God is living inside of you. That's why, as a Christian involved in sin, it's the most miserable place to be in in this world. Because you have too much of the Lord to really enjoy the sin and, and, and too much of sin to enjoy the Lord. So the seed, be it the person of Christ or the Word of God or both, does not allow a person to continually stay that way if you're truly born again. And then in verse 10, John says, this is how you can tell the difference. And this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Don't you love how John just brings it all the way back just to that subject of love? It comes back down to God's love, having God's nature in you. It's going to produce love for God and love for one another. In other words, how can you be born of God and a child of God if you're filled with hatred or if there's no love in your life? It's like the, the congressman addressing the House of Representatives who said, Never before have I heard such an Ill, Ill, ill-informed, wimpy, backstabbing drivel as that just uttered by my respective colleague and distinguished gentleman from Ohio. The same way, you can't say, oh, I can't stand my brother or that sister in the Lord. They're the most irritating, obnoxious individual ever to walk the face of this earth. But I love you, Lord. You can't do that. So the manifestation, the proof that you're truly a child of God, is you're going to practice righteousness and you're going to love your brother. You're going to love your sister. And know, here's the thing about love. Don't sit around waiting for the feeling. Oh, I don't feel like loving them. Just do it. Don't wait for the feeling of love. Just start doing loving things. If you ever looked at 1 Corinthians 13 and when Paul gives us a classic definition of love, he's not so much talking about what love is as much as, as what, what love does. He says, yeah, love is patient and kind, but, but love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own ways. It's not irritable. It keeps no record when it has been wronged. You know, people, they like to keep records of everything. I remember when you said that one hurtful thing 20 years ago. Really? <laughs> Get over it, okay? <laughs> Forgive. See, don't tell me how much you love God if you hate somebody else, John is saying. And he goes on, look at verse 11. And this is a message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. There's so much in the New Testament that speak about the fact that if you're a Christian, if you're living for eternity, if you're living in love, living in hope, you're not going to be loved. You're not going to be liked. In fact, they're going to hate you. And, draw, and John says, let me give you a story about that. And he brings up the story about Cain and Abel. He says Cain was wicked and a murderer and he murdered his brother Abel. And he gives us why he killed Abel. Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain hated his brother simply because Abel was righteous and Cain wasn't. First case of domestic violence there brought against brother against brother. Cain slaying his own brother. You know, we see a lot of that today in our society. I mean, you talk to police officers and they'll tell you most of their time they spend breaking up domestic violence, you know, about domestic violence responses. Many times it leads to murder. John says that's the same kind of hatred that Cain had for Abel. The world 
going to have towards you. The world has towards me. Very few unbelievers love us as Christians. I don't know if you've noticed that lately. <laughs> Non-Christians don't come marching into this church and saying, Oh man, I just want to hang out with you guys. I love the way you guys sing and you smile all the time. Man, I want to hang out with you. No. What do they say? I don't want to be around you Jesus freaks. I want to be around those creeps. I remember, and maybe you had the same kind of testimony, before I was saved, I would see the Christian club on campus and they'd have to see the senior square they'd meet and and I didn't want to have anything to do with them. They seemed weird. You know, so I'd, I'd rather be around other sinners so I wouldn't feel bad about, you know, what I was doing. They all look so nice and clean cut and, and they're always smiling. Oh, it's creepy. Let's get out of here, you know. Why? Because I had the conviction of the Holy Spirit was there. Who wants to be around that conviction of the Holy Spirit? But then you get saved. Then you become one of them. And you think, well, these people aren't so weird after all. Okay, some of them still were, but, but I mean... <laughs> and the natural, before you come to Christ, there was nothing you had that you could relate with them. But in the Spirit, man, the fellowship is great. And the way other believers love you and accepted you and pray for you, man, you start having that love back. Even when people weren't the same type of people you hung around with, you just love them in any way and hang out with them. That's why John says in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. If you have love for other Christians, man, it's a good indication. Man, you're born again. Now, if you find yourself caring about your brothers and sisters in Christ and wanting to stand up for them, you can be sure something unusual has taken place in your heart. And I, because those feelings are contrary to human nature. I mean, look around, you go, wow, I'm here in church on Sunday, and I actually enjoy it. I love hanging out with these folks, even though the pastor's really weird. I love being here. I must truly be saved. I've got to be truly born again. Why? Because we pass from death to life. We have love for one another. What a marvelous thing this is. Then John adds in verse 14, But he who does not love his brother abides in death. In verse 15, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus kind of said the same thing in Matthew chapter 5. If you have hatred in your heart for your brother, then you're murdered because God looks at your heart. And really, the heart is where murder takes place anyway. John says here that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. They've not been born again. They've not been regenerated. And then finally, verse 16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. One of the greatest verses in all of 1 John, great verse to close with. If you were to ask the question this morning, how do I know that God loves me? What's the supreme manifestation of evidence of God's love? Well, he's given me a new car. I mean, he's given me a great family, a nice, great wife, kids. I mean, my health is good. I know God loves me. What about those who don't have a nice car, don't have a, a very good family, and, and the health isn't so good? How do you know that God loves you? I mean, you know, all comes back to this. The cross. The cross. That's the real love of God. Verse 16, By this we know love because He laid down His life for us. How marvelous that Jesus would show us just how much He loved us by going to the cross, dying for us, taking our place there upon the cross. This morning you need to remember that Jesus loves you so very, very, very much that He gave His life for you at the cross of Calvary. What a marvelous thing that it is that He would take away all our sin, that He would destroy the works of the devil as we read, that He would manifest or, or demonstrate the love for you and I, and that He now calls us His children. How marvelous is God's love. That's the real love of God. 
So because of that, we need to live in love, live in hope, live in light of eternity. As we close, when we talk about the hope of heaven, this is not wishful thinking. It's not, you know, blind optimism. It's quiet confidence. It's a supernatural certainty. We know that we know deep in our hearts that we are indeed children of God. And we're told in Romans 8, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you know that right now? Do you know that you're a child of God? Do you have this hope that when you die, you go to heaven? What is hope? Well, it's a, here's an acronym that may help you to understand hope. It's holding on with patient expectation. I like that. Holding on with patient expectation. Now, this applies to life in general. When you're facing a crisis, when, you're, when your marriage may be unraveling, when you have a child that's gone prodigal, when you have a crisis that you're facing, you need to hope, which means hold on with patient expectation. Simply saying, God is in control of your life. has everything in control. He can work all things together for good. Don't forget there's a loving Father that's a watchful eye on you. As we sang this morning, you're a good, good Father. And we have that expectation on heaven on top of that. As we close, if you don't have that expectation of heaven, if you don't have that hope, if you're not born again, I would encourage you this morning. Time is short. God's going to come back very soon to take us as believers into his presence in the heaven. You don't want to be left behind. I want to give your life to Jesus Christ. I want to give you that opportunity if that's your desire this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word and how, Lord, you show us that it's the love that we have for one another, Lord, that's evidence to the world around us that we've been born again. Your word says, by this all men shall know you are my disciples, the love that we have one for another. And we thank you for the love that you've given to us, Lord, that we can share with one another. But I know, Lord, there's a people we know, there may be even someone here, Lord, that has never experienced that love that you have for them. They don't know what it means to to have their sin forgiven. Lord, you came, Jesus. You manifested yourself on this earth to take away our sin. But there may be those that have never had their sin taken away. We know that your word says that you stand at the door and knock of our hearts. If any man hears your voice and opens the door, you'll come in and you'll dine with him. Lord, you'll come into our life, but it takes us making that commitment. It takes us opening the door, inviting you into our lives. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? You want to become a part of the family of God? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. This is between you making that commitment to follow Jesus Christ and He's your Lord and as your Savior. If that's your desire, just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning. Anybody at all? God bless you in the front. God bless you in the back as well. Anybody else? Jesus loves you so much. He wants you to be a part of the family. He wants you to be in heaven with Him. He longs for us to be with Him. But you've got to be one of His kids. Anybody else in these last few moments, just raise your hand so I could pray for you. For those that have raised your hand, and even if you didn't raise your hand, but you want Christ today, I want to ask you just to pray this prayer with me. And this is just a prayer of inviting Jesus into your life. Just repeat this after me. And we as believers, we can pray along with them. God, I'm sorry for my sin. And I turn from it today. Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my God. I want to follow you from this day forward. 
Fill me with your spirit. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that I am now your child. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Welcome to the family of God. Praise God.